From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. Hi there. Welcome to the Peaky Agileist podcast, where I get curious about all things agile. Simply put, agile is about responding to change as quickly as possible, which can be pretty useful in today's fast-paced world. In each episode, I'll be inviting authors, thought leaders and a few friends to share their stories and insights in everyday language that even I can understand. So sit back, grab a samosa or two and enjoy. Today I'm joined by someone whose name I must mention at least two or three times a week, if not more, whilst I'm coaching Agile teams. I recently realised I've been pronouncing his name all wrong, so it's an absolute pleasure and an honour to have the David Marquet on my very first podcast. Welcome, David. Thanks, Patty. Just in case someone out there has been on another planet for the past few years and doesn't know your background, would you like to remind us of what you used to do before you became a best-selling author? Yeah, I was a nuclear submarine commander, which is a job that tends to attract people who like to be in control of things. And there's a, to, to a degree, you want that. But my story was I came up through this regime where I was being promoted because I was so good at telling people what to do. And at the last minute, after 12 minutes of preparing to go to one submarine, I was shifted to one of the newest submarines in the fleet, a kind of submarine I'd never been on before. And it was Alice in Wonderland for me. And oh, by the way, it was the worst performing submarine in the Navy with the worst retention and the worst morale. And the reason I went there on short notice is because the previous captain quit, which is, you can get fired, but quitting is very, um, no one ever heard of that. So they, the Navy says, oh, you got two weeks, you're gonna go over to the Santa Fe. Yeah, it's a different kind of submarine, and yeah, it's the worst submarine, and you can't fire anyone, and the schedule's not gonna change, and they've got the worst morale and retention. Go fix it. So I show up, but and my mindset is, even though you're walking around, you see equipment, you don't know. You don't know how the buttons work, but you're still in this mindset of telling people what to do. It's so deeply ingrained. And the crew, to be honest, was okay with that. They were like, yeah, you're, you're the captain. You tell us what to do. And I gave an order, like the first day at sea that couldn't be done, and the, the officer repeated it, knowing it was it was a BS order. It was it was very simple. It was basically like shifting into second gear uh, on a car that, but but you only had one gear uh, on this motor, and so nothing happened. Nothing bad happened, but it just really blew me away that knowing that there was no second gear, the officer still repeated my suggestion, and I got the officers together. And my instinct was to say, okay, look, you guys need to be empowered. You guys need to speak up. You guys need to blah, blah, blah. It was all about you guys. I'm fine. It's not about me changing. <laughs> That's too hard. Right. And eventually it got reflected back to me that really it was my behavior. It wasn't about them. It was about me. So instead of whining that, hey, my team's not taking initiative, so therefore I have to tell them what to do. It's it's the reason your team's not telling taking initiative is because you keep telling them what to do. So the, the first step is to stop telling people what to do. 
and you and you have to lean back. There's this thing, oh, lean in. I'm going to lean into you. You're going to lean into people below you, and it's direct, direct, and then you report back. And there's this cascading um, sense of control down the organization. And I think that what the reason we do that is because partly it's a biological thing, but also it's an industrial age structure. That that's how we aggregated industrial age workers and we could chunk the work into smaller and smaller pieces that required less and less thinking, therefore less and less education. Therefore, I could pay people less and less. And so now I have 100 workers, each doing one tiny thing, making a car, all of them getting paid uh, as little as possible to maximize the profits. But there's no thinking there. And obviously today, and especially what's, what's going on in the world with coronavirus, thinking not just oh the people at the top do the thinking and everyone else does what they're told that is not that's the fundamental and industrial age structure but it's embedded in so many organizations today we don't even realize it oh you can do it different yeah everyone can think oh how does that work so that's the whole idea and so what when i started leaning back i said well you guys just tell me what what we should do what we what, what you intend to do if i weren't here what would you do if i weren't here and it's just a trick, really, to get people to talk, to expose their thinking, to to be thinking, and make decisions. But it's really uncomfortable because, as for the leader, because you're like, let's see what happens. And there's this like sense of pause. There's this sense of, well, if I just told them what to do, we'd move forward, and that gets in the way of developing leaders. So everything about the way I was taught about leadership. I would just ask the opposite question. And almost always it was right. I it was more useful, I guess is a better way to say it. So instead of giving a lecture, I, I call it, so you want culture change? We did culture change. How does it work? Very simple. The traditional approach to cultural change is two steps. I change your thinking and then you will change your actions. I think this is wrong. I think the right approach is let's change our behaviors in a small way, and that will affect our thinking. So for us, it was very simple things like, hey, don't refer to that person over there in the supply department as they, refer to them as we. So that's an action change, but the thinking then becomes, oh, it feels like a team. The team boundary spans across, and on and on and on. So we just acted our way to new thinking. And for us, it just always went back to language over and over and over again. It would be like, why don't we say it differently? Why don't you say it like this? Try saying it like this. And a lot of it had to do with me asking questions in a different way. And that's what this new book, Leadership as Language, is all about. Awesome. No, that's great. Thank you for that, David. And if you could just quickly take us back to maybe those first few days of being thrown in this situation, being put in charge of this submarine, that was probably a bit like in, in probably soccer terms, Norwich City football team, <laughs> the bottom of the league, and, and turning that sort of team into almost the, the Liverpool of the premiership. Yeah. Those first few days, I mean, what, what was the reaction of the crew? How did you deal with their um, attitudes towards you? Was there any resentment? Maybe describe that as a leader going into that situation. I felt off balance. I, I go onto the submarine. I'd always been rooted in knowing the right answer. I in, in Nuclear submarining, it's all about being technically competent and correct and knowing the right answer. I can write an equation for the nuclear power plant. I could 
repeat the set points. I memorize. It's knowing the right answer. And I get thrown into the situation where I'm walking around and I don't know the right answer. I don't, I know theoretically what we're trying to do, obviously, but I don't know which button to push on the machine to make it happen. Now, as a captain, you don't normally push the buttons, but you would know which buttons to push. So if the team started falling apart, you say, no, okay, it's in the upper left, go down two menu steps, boom, boom, boom. Okay, select this, boom. Okay, there it is, push. You would know that. And so I felt this weird sense of being off balance. And the first thing that happened was I go into the sonar room and I start asking the sailors about their equipment. Now, in the past, my job was to question, but it was question as in testing. Do you know your stuff? Hey, tell me what this, how does that work? Blah, blah, blah. Because I would always know. I'd always know how the gear worked. So this time I walk in, I don't really know. So now I'm asking questions from a, a place of curiosity. But for them, it's still the captain is grilling me with these questions. And, and finally, the sales, ah, I, I don't know. I forgot about that. And as soon as he said that, everybody looked at me. They were like 10 people. They, they, like, their heads like snapped around and they looked at me because that's when normally you would say the answer. And I was like, oh, shit, because I didn't know the answer. And I had this moment where I, I had these masks where I was just like, okay, pretend to know well, you should find out and then come tell me. And you really need to know. And for some reason, this sense of off balance didn't let me go there. And I just said, well, I don't know either. <laughs> they were all looking at me like, what? You're the captain. You're supposed to know. And I had to say over and over and over again, I tell uh, audiences that in that moment, I could feel my heart beating. My respiration was increased. Uh, my body temperature was going up. I was sweating. My palms were feeling itchy. And even though it was only five or 10 seconds, it was the scariest thing I did. We did some stuff that would raise the hair on the back of your neck on that submarine in terms of where we drove it and how, what we did. But none of that really was scary for me because we had a highly trained, competent team. And so the physical thing wasn't really scary, but for me, the emotions of admitting I didn't know that was uber scary. And, and then when I said that, there was this, then it was just like there's this pause and then like all this cloud, the, the, the fog just cleared and the masks dropped away and everyone else could start saying, well, I don't, yeah, let me find out. It's, as long as you're pretending to know things, as long as it's unsafe to say you don't know, and it starts from the leader modeling behavior, then no one's going to say they don't know and no one's going to learn anything. It's all about learning. So, so that launched us into this sort of learning experimental approach. Now, you got to make informed guesses and a hypothesis. And, and there's part of work where we're going to research it. And then we're going to make sure to, to as much as possible we're doing the right thing. But there's also part of work where we don't really know. Like, we're going to launch a new product. How's it going to go? Well, I can make sure that the product is protecting people's privacy. And I can make sure that it's safe from hackers to as much degree as I can. But whether it sells in the market at the price that we think it should is something we don't know. So there's this, there's this sort of uh, hypothesis, do it, and then let's reflect. And that's how we approached everything that we did. And we did all kinds of fun things. We did crazy stuff like 
you read in the manual, if you shut off the oxygen jet into the, to the submarine, you have 135 people and you can do calculations. What's the actual average amount of oxygen one person uses per hour and how much is in the submarine? And you can draw a line and say, okay, at this point, everyone's going to fall unconscious because we don't have enough oxygen. And then now there's, there's precursors before that. You get headaches. So we would actually, but rather than rely on the theory, we would just do it. We would just turn off the oxygen and say, hey, we're going to run an experiment. We're turning off the oxygen. <laughs> if someone's feeling really ill, let us know. We'll turn it back on. <laughs> and then we just take data for, for two hours and we'd see, like, how did it feel physiologically when the oxygen got down? Uh, normally it's around 20%, but then it gets down to 19%, 18%. You start getting headaches. But like that's just one example, but we would do all these things. We'd actually do it, and we take that and we try it. And this piggy, there, there are Navy training programs which tap into this idea. We really live this stuff, and so as a result, the crew learned it. The crew became the one of the most knowledgeable crews I think there was, and and it was the highest performing crew. We got the highest score in the history of the Navy, and. The next 12 months, every sailor signed up to stay in. We went from three sailors out of 33 to 33 out of 33. Wow. Your first book, uh, Turn the Ship Around, it's, it's mentioned in literally every Agile course out there. Why do you think the book resonated so well with the Agile community? What elements of your style of leadership that you were um, evangelizing kind of resonated with, with that community most? Well, I... I love Agile. I, I think there's some things that are just fundamentally right and brilliant about it. Now, we didn't know anything about Agile when we were doing this, but uh, there's some fundamental tenets of how we operated, which I, I think are parallels. Number one, it's all about getting people to think, but it's not, you can't just sit in your room with your arms crossed in a yogi position and just think all day long. You actually have to do something. So you have to think about it, then do it, and then reflect and then hypothesize and do it and then reflect and then hypothesize. And so this was the rhythm of work. And of course that sounds very, that's uh, sprint planning, sprint retrospection uh, cycle. It's, and, and the reason we do it is because we want to activate people's thinking. We say, push the authority to information, not push information to authority. The industrial age command and control approach is the people at the periphery, periphery of the organization i.e. the person looking into the eyeballs of the salesman, the person standing in front of the pump that's vibrating a little bit unusually, the person who's, who's in the code, they have the most information about what's going on, but they don't have the authority to make decisions. So the approach is take aggregate the information, fill out a form, goes up the chain, yes, no, launch the product on time, nope, do more testing. And it comes back down. And so what we tried to do over and over again was let's let the person who's closest to the information make as many decisions about it as possible, which we, again, push the authority to the information, not the other way around. Information authority is separated in hierarchy. I, I don't think we can get away from that, but it's what do you do about it that, well, that was different. Right. And I think that resonated. Plus, it's a true story. It's not made up my experience now with agile uh groups is they can smell bs in a nanosecond look we ran a nuclear submarine this way so you can probably launch your 
Facebook imitation software like this, it'll probably be okay. It's a pretty, pretty critical <laughs> piece of work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and it was fun. So I love, um, and I really uh, appreciate what the Agile community does, not just to, for inviting me to, to, to go join them in different places to talk, but for making the world a better place for people to go to work. No, absolutely. Teams are, really have that, that right culture and, and the right environment around them. Going into Agile, even though it can be quite scary, having that autonomy um, and, and, and being empowered to make those decisions, I, I think it just boosts morale sky high um, versus perhaps the more traditional way of working. Going to the, the new book, so Leadership is Language, I love the cover, by the way, the, the little speech bubble and the thinking <laughs> bubble. And you talked a little bit about the sort of the industrial age versus the, the modern thinking age. Could you explain the concept in the book about red work versus blue work? Yeah. So it goes back to this rhythm of work, which is we we're physically engaged in the world, which is I call red work. It's it, it red work is the work. It, we're building code, we're assembling cars, we are uh, meeting with clients, we're uh, checking someone in uh, at a hotel, we're flying an airplane, we're operating on a patient. It's it is the work, and then blue work is thinking about the work. And so there are a couple of things. Number one is in a lot of empowerment, well, my experience was as I started talking about empowering people is we tended to, I thought, inappropriately denigrate the work itself and underappreciate the actual work. We were like, oh, we're going to network. We're going to meet with people. I'm going to you know, connect A to B to C to D. Yeah, but someone's actually has to still write the code. Right. <laughs> And uh, so I wanted to elevate the appreciation of the work. And number two is, I, it's too simplistic in my mind to say, well, we used to have these industrial age organizations and it was all about um, these assembly lines. And, and now we're just going to stop and everyone put your pencil down and we're just going to think. That to me was also not right. And for me, it, it's always the interaction between engaging in the world, the physical task, and then thinking about it. And I've, I've been on, I've been over biased on both sides. Sometimes I'm just doing, 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 doing stuff. And I realize sometimes it's uh, just for a day. It might be, I did something for a couple of years. I had a job for a couple of years. Well, like, what am I doing? I don't, cause there's not enough blue. There's not enough thinking about it. But uh, other times I've been over biased on the blue side where I'm just, I'm thinking and like, well, what am I going to do? And it seems really big and overwhelming. Like, I don't know where to start. And in this case, what you need to do is do something small and chunk it very small and just do something, make a hypothesis to say, well, this isn't perfect, but it's better than just, I'm not going to know if I just keep thinking about it. I need to actually do it and then see what happens. Writing a book is like that. You can think and think and think. I think I like when you start writing a book, you don't know what it's going to be. You think you know, but you don't. And it's only by starting to write and say, oh, okay, now I see. Oh, this doesn't make Oh, this connects to that. Oh, okay. But it's the action of writing, which will take you there. So that's the idea. It, this should sound super obvious to agile groups because it's exactly like I said with the sprint. What I think, what I perceive is to be the sprint process. Now, Agile guys say, oh, well, that's not really true. Um, we have a daily stand-up where there's a tiny bit of thinking in there. And when I'm doing the code, it's not like I'm not thinking. 
uh, I still have to make decisions about how to structure the, the software. And, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm not saying there's no thinking while you're doing this other red work, but it's recursive. So there's this big thinking. We might take a day to do a retrospective, but then we take an hour to do a morning meeting or 15 minutes, and then we might take 30 seconds. But the key is the way we use our brains during these two different processes is different. When you're in the work, it's focused. The, the more focused you can be, that's why uh, when every time I go see these coders, they all have the headphones on because <laughs> they're trying to focus. They're trying to exclude distractions. But when we say, well, how, what do we learn? Uh, what, how can we get new ideas? What other ways could we uh, approach this problem? Now you want broad perspective. So it's sort of a head down focus versus a head up broad perspective. And those are two different ways of using your brain. And it's about variability. I want, I'm starting the nuclear power plant. I'm in the procedure. I want to go A, B, C, D. I don't want variability. I don't want A, B, D, C. I don't, I, you don't want that. That means boom, bad. So we, when we're making parts on an assembly line, when I'm writing code, I don't want, I can't just write random code. It has to be in accordance with the language. So I reduce variability, but when I thinking about it, so the before and after, should we start the reactor? Right. When, which team are we going to use? Then I want thinking. So, and I have to, and if I don't, if I'm not clear about this is embrace variability work and this is reduce variability work, then what happens is that work, it all feels the same. I'm just sort of broad and I'm sort of focused, but I'm not really uber focused. And I'm not really broad. I feel like I am, but I'm not. Versus teams that say, now we're laser focused. Now we're super broad scanning the horizon. Which I'm guessing is the core part of the book, the six plays that you've yeah. introduced. And that, that's all about switching between those different modes of working. Is that, would that be correct? Yeah. So my, my, my experience of life was I kept asking questions and I said, why did I ask it that way? That wasn't very helpful. Someone comes up to me and says, hey, I'd like to uh, delay the software, launch, the product launch next week. And I'm like, what? Why? No, look, we've talked about this. And so in other words, I'm reacting, I'm responding, I'm, I'm projecting what I think versus, and I went, no, 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 let me try again. I started by saying, well, why do you want to do that? But that even that's a little provocative. I, I was trying to reprogram my brain to just be very neutral. Oh, and be neutral in terms of tone and curious in terms of intent. You got to start with just, hey, what are you seeing? What do you see? That's seeing is description. Description is safe. You mentioned before it feels scary. And I, and I, and I, I think that's right because now I'm taking responsibility for the future, which is unknown. I can be wrong. And so we start with, what do you see? Describe the situation. What, what's going on? What do you recommend? And what do you intend to do? If I weren't here and you had to make this call, what would you do? So you're basically weaning people of their dependence. I'm coming to, coming to talk to you. And what you're doing is you, the mindset is you're building a decision-making factory, not you're the decision-maker. Before coming across your work, this perception that the more that a leader speaks, the better the leader they are. And <laughs> something that I've um, I, that really stood out in, in your book was where you talked about the share of voice and the team language coefficient. Um, and you got a bit mathematical on me on that one. Yeah. Um, and and <laughs> maths isn't my strong point. So yeah. <laughs> could you just break that 
sort of concept down a little bit for us and then just explain what you meant by that? Well, you know, I'm a engineer, so I had to have some math in the book, but <laughs> you don't need, you don't need any math. Everyone intuitively senses this. You go to a meeting and I, I just ask afterwards, take a card, write down the percentage of words that each person said. And the sense is that the higher you are, the more words you you're entitled to. And we know this is scientifically true. We are looking, we looked at transcripts. And one of the stories that runs throughout the book is the transcript of this uh, ship. So it's a, the, they have black boxes like airplanes, but airplane black box transcripts are, are not that long. This is 25 hours. The ship sank in a hurricane and everyone died. But we have 25 hours of their conversations as they were dealing with decisions about how to avoid the hurricane. And so we, so we analyzed this language in a bunch of different ways, but one of them was just very simply counting the words. And every time the captain was on the bridge, so there was the captain, an officer, and then a crew member. So it was three-person team. Every single time the captain said the most number of words and more than half of the word, every time. And then we say, well, the problem is people aren't speaking up. That's not the problem. The problem is you're just talking too much. And what you want to do in a meeting is we call it leveling the share of voice. So if there's three people, you, you don't want 50%, 40%, 10%. You want 40, 30, 30, or so, something that's closer to flat. And uh, there's some work by uh, a guy named uh, Professor Malone at MIT where he studied this. And it turns out that the the more even that share of voices, the more the better the team's decisions are because, and it makes sense because you have more information. We call it the wisdom of the crowd versus the wisdom of the loud, which is are just the people. And by the way, if you're the leader, you already know what you think, so you don't need to say it. You, you saying what you think results in reducing variability because as soon as you, and some people like deliberately do this, I need to get everyone on board. I want to build consensus. What is that? It sounds like reduced variability. That's appropriate for doing work. That's appropriate for assembly line work. For thinking, you want the opposite. We approach innovation like it's an assembly line and we, we're confused why it doesn't work. It's because we're applying the wrong playbook. We're applying a reduced variability language and a reduced variability playbook and it doesn't work. And so just going over to the six plays that you have in the book, what was the idea behind having a playbook in the first place? I identified, I, I call them the six plays from the industrial age, and they all have to do with, uh, they stem from two original sins. One is the sense of a bang clock. And the second original sin is the fact that we've divided the organization into leaders, followers, management, uh, workers, salary people, hourly people, white collar, blue collar. I mean, this dichotomous language is the problem. And so what that means is, oh, we're the thinking group and you're the doing group. We do blue work, you do red work. So for example, the last play in the industrial age is, oh, I call it conform. Play your hierarchical role. Don't go walking into the boss's office unannounced. Conform to your role. You're a doer. Do what you're told. Be a team player. And uh, what I think we need to replace that with is connect. Well, it's interesting. We know that uh, emotions are actually needed. In order for you to make decisions, you need your emotions. 
and there I talk about a, a case where a man had a brain tumor where the surgery was successful. He was just as intelligent as he was before, but he it affected part of the emotional processing part of, parts of his brain, and he just couldn't make decisions. And so the, we know healthy emotions are necessary for healthy decisions. And in the industrial age, I didn't care about your emotional health because I didn't ask you to make decisions. I, didn't, I wasn't going to you and saying, well, how should we change the assembly line? Should we even be making cars? Maybe we should be making electric cars. Uh, I didn't ask you that. So be, connecting to you as a human being actually got in the way of me beating you on the head and just coercing you into doing what I needed you to do. Fantastic. And out of the six plays, is there one that really stands out for you aside from the connect play in terms of helping some of the leaders out there in this current situation i can imagine there's panic all around the world right now we have leaders of big corporates even team managers trying to deal with lots of uncertainty team members feeling really vulnerable what would you recommend in in terms of the plays the most important one i would say was be the sense of improvement Right. Uh, be, be because we're in such a, an unknown time, the leadership of the company can get together and say, okay, here's what we're going to do, keyword do, and, and then they're going to tell everyone, and it's going to be, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, some people will like it, some people won't. And it's a sense of proving, okay, we're going to do something. Therefore, that's going to invoke a mindset of I got to prove it and, and do it versus a sense of improving and learning. So rather than saying that, I say, hey, we don't know. We don't know any more than you guys. Like, first of all, admit, say, I don't know. Right. Yep. Right. We don't, we don't know how long it's going to last. We may be locked down six months from now. I hope not. Maybe I don't think so. But we don't know. We may be lifted. In a week, I don't know. The coronavirus may research next winter twice as bad as it is today. We don't know. This may be something we do like every year for the next five years. We may have a period of one month every winter where everyone just we shift it and we just work from home. We don't know. So here's let's do this. Let's run in some. The, the, we're going to couch these things as, as experiments. Okay, let's try this. Let's see what we can do. Now a lot of our clients. Some people can work from home, but some people can't. Oil refineries, nuclear power plants, um, food processing plant. Uh, so, but but again, it's an experiment. So say, hey, look, we don't know. Let's try this for the next four weeks and then uh, reflect. I want everyone's opinion, how to go, how can we make it better? And then go, then, okay, let's tweak it, make it a little bit better and then try it again. So I think that's this approach of experimentation. It also makes it more like, hey, it's a little more fun. Hey, here's what we're going to learn. What can we learn from this? And then maybe there's some stuff we can learn from this about resilience and being independent and working from home that we can then apply. I mean, there's there's some good stuff. The canals in Venice, Italy, are clean. The skies in um, Shanghai are clear. There's some good stuff. Now, it's bad for the airlines. So can we keep some of these good things and uh, learn from them. Sure. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for that, David. I guess we've sort of come to the end of time, but I, I really want to say a huge thank you for uh, for joining me today. There's some fantastic messages in there. There's something for 
literally everybody to take away this situation that we're in actually brings it across a lot of positives and i think part of that is that humanistic side of things so um thank you for really getting that out for us as well david so thank you for your time cheers thanks a lot thanks 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 to your listeners